God's word lasts forever. There. Have you ever been left out of something? Not chosen for dodgeball in elementary school? Not invited to sit with the cool kids at lunch? Not welcomed into a group at college or work? Have you ever heard the phrase, there's no room for you here? You ever come up on a group of people and you can tell, by the way, there's no desire for reciprocal relationship that this group is closed. You are on the outside, wanting to be on the inside, hurting, feeling unwanted. In a way, this is our story today. We meet a mom who desperately wants her daughter to be healed, and yet she is turned away. Jesus doesn't even speak to her because she's of a different ethnicity. She's not of the Jewish people. However, before the hair on the backs of our necks get all riled up, we remember as we continued reading this morning that the story does not end for this mom in that way or for us. No matter what our ethnicity is, Jesus is compassionate to the outsider, the lame, and the hungry. Let's look at it together. Verses 21 through 39 of Matthew 16, we'll look at three pericopes or stories that reveal Jesus as compassionate to the outsider, the lame, and the hungry. The first pericope, if you, or if you like outlines, the first point is that Jesus acknowledge, acknowledges the great faith of an outsider. Jesus acknowledges the great faith of an outsider. When we're reading through the story, this is the one that gets you caught up with emotion if you read it, perceiving what's happening. This is the strangest of the three stories. Because of how the mother is ignored, spoken to. At first blush, it seems rude of Jesus and his disciples to ignore her, not help her, simply because she's of the Jewish people. She's a mom wanting to get help for her daughter. There's nothing so ferocious as a mama bear wanting to protect or help their child. But as we read this, we begin to feel as though she is made to think she is ethnically not good enough, an outsider, one to whom Jesus has not come to serve. Thankfully, though, as we continue on, we realize and we know we do not get our theology we ought not get our theology solely from our emotions. And thankfully, the story does not end there. There is, however, a background to this story that is helpful for us to go over once again. And that is that the background goes all the way back, back to Genesis chapter 12. You didn't realize we would go that far back. But in Genesis chapter 12, God comes to a man, an unknown man at that point in the biblical story, but a man named Abram, and he promises to make this man the father of a great nation. Here's what it says in Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred, your father's house, to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. However, the guy that God selects is really old, and so is his wife, and they have no children. 
Normally, not having children is not a deal breaker for most jobs in God's economy. But if you are to be the father of a great nation of people, it would presuppose that you must have a person that comes from your own lineage. So God promises a son to Abram and his wife, Sarai. The child comes and the nation that is to be great is now three. The people continue to grow one child at a time. We read this throughout the story of Genesis and they end up in Egypt because of a famine that was in the land. They go to Egypt where Joseph has sent ahead of them to protect life. And when they get to Egypt, there are now 70. Hard cry from a mighty nation. Not quite great nation yet, but the story isn't over yet, is it? We don't want to capture it too early and come to a conclusion that would be faulty, just like we don't want to do that here with this Canaanite woman. While in Egypt, God blesses this nation greatly. By the time they leave Egyptian captivity in the Exodus, 430 years later, this mighty nation is growing and could be, as some generous estimations would be, two million plus, give or take a few. Now, if you think that the idea of 70 people coming into a nation and coming out two million plus is far-fetched, just think of the growth rate. A standard growth rate in the middle of the 20th century is 2.2% growth rate worldwide. That's what it was in the middle of the 20th middle of the 20th century. The growth rate for Israel at that point would only need to be 2.6%. And while that's extraordinarily high, it's not too far beyond the normal 2.2% growth rate. Not that God can't bless a nation abundantly with all of these children, but here you have the possibility that this nation is overwhelming its captors. And God promises this nation is to be a great nation that God will provide an exodus for them, bring them out of captivity to their own land. They will have a land of their own. They will be blessed. They'll be protected because those who curse them will be cursed. And through them, through Israel, God's people, Abram's family, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What a people, right? And that's the Jewish people. That's their lineage. That's their heritage of which God establishes in the Old Testament. And yet as we continue on, not wanting to make conclusions before the end of the story, we continue into the Old Testament, further into the prophets, and we come to one prophet named Daniel. And in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, he has a vision. Daniel has lots of visions, and Daniel helps other people with their visions as God allows And Daniel, in one of his visions, in chapter 7 of the book named after him, it says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. He came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. It doesn't take much, even in apocalyptic literature, for us to be able to read and see that there is one coming who with the Ancient of Days, like the Son of Man, these messianic prophecies of one who is to come, and his kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom. 
It will not pass away. It will not be destroyed. And yet it will be made up, not merely of just Israel, but peoples, nations, languages. The text said all peoples. So now you have this beautiful scene of a king being worshipped from all types of people, all nations and languages serving him. So this people that a promise was made in Genesis chapter 12 to one man and to his people now begins to expand. And the Old Testament ends with prophecies like Daniel 7, but of a Redeemer coming, the Messiah, who will save his people from their sins. This Messiah will come from the tribe of Judah of the people of Israel. Be one of them and yet one not like them. But one, of the son, but one Son of Man, the Son of God Himself. He will come as He is promised to come. And He will not only save His people, the Jews, but as the promise is given in Genesis 12, He will be a blessing to all the families of the earth. All the promises God made to the Jewish people have been fulfilled in Jesus. The Scriptures are really clear. But Jesus is the point of real transition. It's the coming of Jesus that begins to see the expansion more clearly of God's people, this nation, that's not to be made just of those who are of Jewish descent, but all peoples of the earth. And it certainly isn't as though the Jews are all of a sudden cast aside when Jesus comes. That Jesus comes and you had your chance and now we're going to open it up to everybody. But in the expansion of God's kingdom to all peoples, Jews included, now it's not based on ethnicity, as if it ever was, but it's not based on ethnicity, but faith. The Jews have not been replaced. That was never the question. It's never the right answer. But the reality is the fulfillment of the promises to Abraham are found in Jesus. So everyone who comes to Jesus is the people of Abraham the people of God. There was a song when I was a kid called Father Abraham. Did you ever see that song? There's a Sunday school, maybe a Wana song. Father Abraham had many sons. Well, then I get to college and some people in college were pontificating on the Sunday school song, Father Abraham. Now, I hated the song because of all the motions. I'm not a motion guy, right? I don't care to do all of that and sit down. And, it's just not my thing. It was fine if you like that. We're not going to sing it right now. Can, <laughs> Certainly promise you that. But I get into college and everybody is saying, oh, goodness, no, that is not how it happens. We are the church. We are not children of Abraham. Then I get to seminary and we start learning biblical theology and seeing how the people of God from the Old Testament, like we just walked through, are the people of God in the New Testament and it expands and it's not a replacement as if you have Israel and now you have the church, but this expansion that comes in Christ where we're all one people of God come by faith in Jesus now. And yet the Old Testament believers came to him by faith as well. It wasn't just as though ethnically they were automatically brought into God's people simply because their family was of the tribes of Israel. One still had to come by faith in God. We come to salvation now by faith in the finished work of Jesus. And in so doing, our Father spiritually can be, as we see, Abraham, one who has gone before us. The promise is given to him. We are in Christ by faith. It is no longer about ethnicity, but faith. 
It doesn't matter what side of the tracks or what tribe you were born into, but if you have come to put your faith in the Son of God who gave his life for you, then you are in Christ and a part of the people of God. But it's tricky when we get in the Gospels because there's a huge transitioning that's occurring, occurring in the minds of the Jewish people, not occurring in the mind of Jesus. And yet here Jesus is making this claim to this Canaanite woman who is the sworn enemy, Canaanites, of the Jewish people in the Old Testament. And as Jesus is trying to get away in the district of Tyre and Sidon, going near the coast, away from the Sea of Galilee, he's in Gentile territory. It seems as though, by his response to her, that it's not to do the same type of ministry he had been doing. Maybe finally they can get away to rest. And yet, as Jesus is talking with a Canaanite woman, we're seeing the shift or expansion of the people of God right before our very eyes. She believes in him. She believes that he can heal her daughter. And that's why she comes up to him. She comes from that region. It says, from that region, came out to where they were and was crying. Have mercy on me. Notice the language she uses, referencing his lineage. O Lord, son of David. She comes in faith. She comes knowing who he is, who he was prophesied to be. She comes in faith and Jesus knows it. And she comes feisty and Jesus acknowledges her faith. Jesus doesn't push her away. When she begins to be a little bit pushy or feisty with him, it's only a reference to she knows what it is he can do. And she knows the only hope for her daughter is this man from Nazareth the very Son of God who can heal her. There's a similar story that happens earlier in Matthew where a non-Jew comes, a centurion comes to Jesus on behalf of one of his servants. It's found, the story is found in Matthew chapter 8. There the centurion comes to Jesus and says, Lord, I'm not worthy. After he's asked him to heal his servant, Jesus says, I'll come and do it right now. And the centurion got a little bit different of a response than the lady does here in Matthew 15, right? I was struck by that this week. I don't know that I've read this before or in this way. She speaks, she's crying out, Lord, have mercy, son of David. And he doesn't say anything to her. I don't know if you're anything like me, but you want to weep. Here's a lady coming and pouring out her heart and Jesus turns his back, doesn't answer a word, sorry it says, but he did not answer her a word. But remember, we don't make conclusions until the end of the story, okay? Verse 9 of Matthew, back in Matthew chapter 8 with a centurion, the centurion says, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Only say the word and my servant will be healed. Jesus hears this. He marvels and said to those who followed him, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from the east and the west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to, this, this, to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Similar outcome, isn't it, to this lady and her daughter being healed instantly. Let it be done as you have asked. 
But here Jesus in Matthew 8 to the centurion is alluding to what is happening and what will happen, that many will come who will dine at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob from all regions of the world, and yet there will be children of the kingdom. And that references to those who are born of Israel, who will be thrown into outer darkness, who will not have faith in Jesus when He comes. Who are Jesus' greatest detractors from His ministry? Jewish people, Jewish religious leaders. And it's not as though we lump all of them into the same category, but there will be this expanding of God's people and God's kingdom to every tribe, tongue, people, and language. You notice the story with Jesus here. The woman gets on her knees. She is begging. She kneels before him as the disciples are are literally trying to get Jesus, just heal her daughter and get her out of here. They're not just saying, please get her out, but send her away. She's crying out after us. Literally, please be done with the nuisance of the noise. We're trying to get respite. (laughs) She falls on her knees. She's before the Son of God. Lord, help me. And Jesus' response to her in the way that he gives this, this illustration regarding dogs can be highly offensive. The word that is given to Gentiles is to be called dogs. These aren't cute, cuddly doodles that you have in your house where you love this little animal and you pour more money into it than you do your children sometimes. Okay, treat it as your child or grandchild and it wears coats in the winter and boots on its feet in the rain. That's not the type of dog that we're talking about. This is a bad thing. You do not want to be called a Gentile dog, an outsider. Jesus is referencing that there is this elephant in the room. You are not of the Jewish people. You are outside of the people of Israel. And it is not right to take bread that is meant for the children of the kingdom and throw it to dogs. And her response back is one of faith, not one of rebuke. Jesus, remember, in all of this language, this is where this gets so hard for us emotionally. This is why we don't make theology based on our emotions. Emotionally, you want to say, he is rude and a jerk and a chauvinist pig. Based on the text, it can look like that, right, in the beginning. And yet we know, based on how Scripture clearly states, Jesus never does anything that is wrong or sinful. He is without sin in every way. We read from that of Isaiah 53. One who will not in any way sin or do wrong and can't to be a sacrifice for sin. And she responds back, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. There's still some pieces that come to these little animals. They still get fed from your table. You have a dog, you know that that's true. And if you have little children, you know for sure that's true. That's why the dog loves those kids. Because their hands have ranch or fries or something in them for the dog. She knows. And Jesus' response to her is, woman, great is your faith. He doesn't say this to anybody else. He didn't say it to the centurion. He said to the centurion something a little bit different, but I think it can be significant. To the centurion, he says, I haven't found faith like this in all Israel. 
Woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. The woman ends up on her knees before Jesus. He sees her faith. He calls her faith great. Her daughter is healed, and she becomes his daughter. Jesus shows compassion to this outsider, to Israel, because of her faith. Romans chapter 15, verses 8 through 9, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises that were given to the patriarchs. This is what we've been saying in the Old Testament. And, Paul goes on in Romans 15, in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. Lord, have mercy on me. And He did. And He healed her daughter. And He brought her into the kingdom. Her daughter is instantly healed of the oppression of demons, and she is instantly healed for all of eternity. What great faith. The second story that we look at, the pericope here, beginning of verse 29, keeps us continuing to look at outsiders, but in a different way. Again, so if you're taking notes in an outline, it's helpful. The second point is Jesus heals the lame, the blind, the mute, and the crippled. We're just walking through the narrative, pointing out what it is that Jesus is doing. But Jesus heals the lame, the blind, the mute, and the crippled. We're used to this by now. We're in Matthew chapter 15. We're used to him healing all these people. Jesus healing the sick and the suffering, those who physically cannot make their way to Jesus. You notice that all of these people were brought to Jesus. The great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. These people didn't have an opportunity to come to Jesus on their own. They were brought by someone else. They have advocates, people who will carry them, walk them, guide them, bring them to Jesus. The lame could not walk to Jesus. The blind could not see to find Jesus. The mute could not speak to Jesus or cry out, Lord, have mercy. And yet they found themselves at Jesus' feet. We'll see this in each of the three stories where people are on their feet with Jesus. She was on her knees before Jesus crying out for mercy. These people are brought to Jesus' feet, either standing, kneeling, on the ground if they can't walk. However, here, these who are healed begin to glorify God. Notice that when they're healed, the text says that they began to glorify the God of Israel. They see, the crowd sees what's happening. They see this person who has come that they brought, who is mute, can't talk. He's talking now. Someone who is blind is now being able to see. Someone who is crippled is now jumping and leaping and is healthy. The lame are walking and they glorify God. It doesn't stop with just they glorify God, but they glorify the God of Israel. This group, most likely commentators will say, based on the geography of where Jesus was at in Tyre and Sidon, in the first pericope, and as he moves from there and walks beside the Sea of Galilee, and where he ends up going at the end of our story, that Jesus is still in this Gentile area, and that most likely all three scenes take place as Jesus is ministering to those outside of Israel. You see the beginning Jesus had 
not a difficulty in and of himself, but there was some rough goes about with the Canaanite woman. A difficulty, our hearts wrenched because of what's occurring in ways for her and her pleas being ignored in the beginning. One person is healed. One person expresses faith in Jesus, the son of David, the promised one. One person comes to faith and enters the kingdom. Now here, many are healed. It doesn't say that they're healed in faith. They're not expressing faith in the same way she did, but they're healed physically. And when the crowds see it, they express faith. They at least express faith in glorifying the God of Israel, the God who has redeemed his people from Egypt, the God who has cared for his people in the wilderness, the God of the scriptures that they have. This God is the one who is now healing. This is God himself. This is the Son of God, the promised Messiah. This is the one. And they glorify the God of Israel. Jesus healed them, and they respond by glorifying the God of Israel. They were not of Israel, most likely. So in their glorifying God, they acknowledge him as God of the Jews. And they end up at the feet of Jesus. Seeing his works, the crowd has brought them, and they glorify God as they see what he has done. Thirdly, the last pericope that we see beginning in verse 32. The third point, Jesus has compassion on the crowd and feeds them. Most likely the same crowd, the same crowd who brought all these people to be healed and the people who have just been healed. Jesus says, I have compassion on this crowd. They've been with me now three days. And we don't have any movement in Matthew to suggest that he's moved on from there as he goes up onto this mountain and they're there in a desolate area. The disciples make it clear there's no shop around. We can't go to the grocery store and pick up enough food for 4,000 men, most likely 10 11, 12,000 people. It's the same crowd. And Jesus wants to show compassion on them. He doesn't want to send them away hungry. The crowd's very large. This is the second time he's done something like this. You remember he did this before, feeding a crowd of 5,000 men, which would have been maybe closer to 15,000 people total. There's no preparations. They don't have food. There's not nearly enough food. Nobody has enough money. There's no provisions around. And yet, what do they do? Jesus seats them. Jesus seats them, puts them down. He directs the crowd to sit down on the ground. Verse 35, he took the seven loaves and the fish. He gave thanks to God, and he broke them and gave them to his disciples. And the miracle of feeding the 4,000, just as he had done once before, feeding 5,000 people, there's enough left over. There's no mention of their faith at the end of this story. But in this last section, what stands out is the disciples' lack of faith. The disciples have seen this before. They're not, they ought not to be surprised that there's a crowd of people and Jesus wants to feed them and they've got nothing to do it with. And go, oh, I feel like this happened once before. He can probably do it again. This crowd's a little bit smaller, but we had leftovers when there was 15,000. We should be okay with 10. I mean, I'm no like, you know, I don't work in a catering business, but I can probably figure this out. This guy's got this handled. But the disciples have issues. Where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? 
The Canaanite woman, who is outside of the people of Israel, has extremely great faith, goes to Jesus knowing He can heal. The disciples are insiders. They're with Him all the time, and their faith is nil. The outsiders have faith, but not the insiders. The disciples cannot figure out how Jesus can feed people, even if they've seen Him already do it. All three of these stories, a woman who exercises faith and her daughter is healed, the lame are made well and glorify God, and the crowds are fed, and its text says, and are satisfied. They all are on their knees, at the feet of Jesus, sitting before their teacher. There's an act of submission to one they know who he is, what he can do, what they've seen him do, what they've heard of him. There's faith. They're all on their knees. And if they have faith, these outsiders will become the people of God. The Canaanite woman, because of her faith, is a child of God, while one of the disciples, Judas, a disciple and a Jew, is not. So what? We look at a text like this and we say, so what? Some outsiders who weren't Jewish people came to faith in Jesus and the kingdom of God gets expanded. That's fantastic, but so what? All the people who were healed that day still one day died. All the people who were fed that day, still the next day or two days later, on their journey at some point, were hungry again. Someone might be reading this passage and say, this is absolutely incredible. If we can get Jesus or somebody, a religious teacher, to get himself up on a mountain and do this kind of stuff, you don't believe how viral that would go. All the people that would believe in Jesus, why doesn't he heal and do miracles today like he did then? Why doesn't he feed all these people out of nothing? Why doesn't he heal the blind and heal the lame and cause those who are mute to talk? And the reality is that he is doing greater miracles and has already done greater miracles than those. Why heal someone temporarily when Jesus, by means of the Holy Spirit and by His Word that He has given, means of grace already in the world today, can open, transform someone's heart for all of eternity? Why give them temporary food, which He encourages in other parts of the New Testament, when He can give them and feed them eternally? The greater miracle has already been done. Jesus gave his life willingly on the cross for you and for me. He gave his life for those of Israel who come to him by faith, those who are not of Israel but Gentile outsiders who come to him by faith. Jesus gave his life for sinners, like we read of in the text, and that we see in the mirror of the text. We look at our own hearts. Not only that, but Jesus died, was buried, raised on the third day, and on the scale of miracles, that resurrection from the dead beats any of these others. While 5,000 men were fed on one day, Jesus' resurrection from the dead secures redemption for all who come to him in faith, whether they've seen him physically with their own two eyes or not. He has done far more already. The work of redemption has already been done. We need not see a sign like this to put our faith in Jesus. We've been given so much more. We could see from here, we were the outsiders. He came and gave his life for us. 
those of us who weren't born, for the most part maybe, weren't born into the lineage of Israel, are not of Jewish descent. In the Old Testament, would have been considered outsiders. Jesus is making it very clear in his coming, he's ushering in a kingdom that expands the people of God, as it was always meant to be. We were the outsiders, and he came and gave his life for us. He came from heaven to earth for us. He made himself an outsider, in a sense, leaving his throne in heaven to come to earth for us. And he came for sinners, both Jews and Gentiles alike. Paul writes of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, and buckle up as you hear it, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. You're coming to Jesus in faith, recognizing you are a sinner, and putting your faith and trust in the Son of God who came and gave His life for you is a far greater miracle than Jesus feeding 10,000 people out of a few loaves of bread and a few dry fish. The miracle of regeneration, where your heart has been transformed by the gospel. We all were sinners. You can't read that list in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and go, that's not me. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes it clear. What we think in our hearts, so are we. And such were some of you. But you were washed and sanctified, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so will be all outsiders, all people of Jewish descent who come to faith in Jesus. So that we see this scene in Revelation, a passage you know well. If you've read uh, the book of Revelation, this passage maybe stands out as it does for me. Revelation chapter 5, and they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. There will be a kingdom of people from every tribe, every nation, every ethnicity, every people and language. We as outsiders have come to faith in Christ. He has given his life for us and he has made us insiders if we can continue to use that language. And secondly, not only has he made us come for us who are outsiders and given his life for us, but we are now to bless those outside of Christ as Jesus did for us. In the same way that Jesus comes and gives his life and serves those who are outside of, in those days, as we see in these stories, those who are outside of Israel, and they come to faith, Jesus has compassion on them and heals them and serves them and provides for them. And he's done the same for us. He came and gave his life for us. He died on the cross for us. He came from heaven down to us, so we too, ought to bless those 
serve those, have compassion on those who currently are outside of Christ, who are not yet believers, as Jesus did for us, so that they might yet come into the kingdom of God, have their heart transformed. That miracle of redemption that happened for us might happen for them. You remember the promise that was given to Abraham in Genesis 12. Israel was blessed that they might bless others from this people, that all the families of the earth would be blessed. We are saved to glorify God and draw others to Jesus. We never know how God will use our compassion and care for others in the same way that we have been shown compassion and care by Christ. May we do the same for those who are outside of Christ. Knowing that as Philippians chapter 2 writes, there will come a day when every knee You have three sections here. They're on their knees. They're on their feet. They're at the feet of Jesus. But Philippians chapter 2 verse 12 says, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Verse 10, excuse me. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, both those who are in Christ and those who are outside of Christ. The confession will be universal. The destination will not be. And so may we, who have been blessed to be brought in Christ by the work that he has done for us, may we continue to be a blessing to those who currently are outside of Christ, that we might see those who are dead in their trespasses and sin come to faith in Jesus and see them washed and sanctified and justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And if this is you who say, I'm sitting here and I've never heard of any of this gospel before. I've been in church before. I've never heard of the people of Israel and the people of God and you are in Christ by faith. Never heard of this outsiders and Jesus comes to outsiders. We would love nothing more than to talk with you, to be able to share with you the good news that the son of God, the creator of the universe came and gave his life for you willingly. He came for sinners. He didn't come for those who were righteous, those who were already going to church and had cleaned themselves up. He came for sinners that he might redeem you and make you his own, that you who are outside of Christ would come and be in Christ. Not just receiving compassion for a meal or receiving compassion to now walk because you couldn't walk before, but for all of eternity, singing the praises, glorifying the God of Israel, the Son of God who has come and given His life for us, for all of eternity, being united to Christ. There is no greater miracle than that of redemption that comes through the shed blood of Jesus on the cross for us. And we pray and will pray that God would continue to bring people to faith in Christ and expand His kingdom here in Ellensburg and all across the globe. Would you join me as we pray? Our Father, we are grateful And as Jesus, when he's offering a meal for 10,000 or so people who are hungry and on a hillside, we are grateful. We offer you thanks that from your word, you continue to feed us. At any time, we can open the scriptures and we can be fed by your word. This morning, we have eaten, drunk deeply on the person of Jesus who has come for those who are outside outside of Israel, and yet Jesus brings them inside into himself. 
And for those of us who have put our faith and trust in Jesus alone to save us, we too have been united to Christ for all of eternity. There is nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ. Death, suffering, sword, Paul writes, nothing in heaven and on earth can separate us from the love of Christ for us. And Father, we pray that if there is someone here who does not yet know you, who knows in their heart that they are outside of Christ, they have not put their faith and trust in Jesus alone to save them, they are trusting in their own good works. They are hoping against hope that in the end, God will just bring and let everybody in. That they get themselves in by their own good actions, by their own smarts or abilities that they might have. And yet we know the scripture says the opposite. That there is one way and that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And we ask that you would continue to work in their hearts, opening their eyes to the beauty of the gospel. That they come and recognize they are a sinner in need of a savior. And that Jesus has come and given his life for them. And we pray that they would come. Father, would you continue to draw them? Would you continue to use your word to feed and encourage us and continue to draw sinners to yourself? Continue to draw us sinners who have come to you by faith to you regularly, daily, again and again, that we find mercy at the cross. Father, we love you. We ask your blessing on the remainder of our worship as we sing and as we hear the benediction. May you be honored and glorified in Jesus' name. Amen.